She laid down for a nap in the woods once, and when she woke, there were three buzzards that had come down, and they were standing right beside her, just looking, looking at her, shoulder to shoulder. And she turned to them and she said, "I'm not dead yet." And they all flew off. That was author Ben Montgomery talking about Grandma Gatewood, the first woman to complete a solo through hike of the Appalachian Trail. In 1955, at the age of 67, Emma Gatewood walked over 2,000 miles from Georgia to Maine along what was, at the time, a little-known and rarely maintained footpath through the Appalachian Range. Although she began her hike in secret, she was a national celebrity by the time she finished, and the public attention that she brought to the Appalachian Trail saved it from disappearing into obscurity. Ben Montgomery wrote Grandma Gatewood's Walk, a biography of Emma Gatewood that won the National Outdoor Book Award in 2014. He's actually a distant relative of Emma Gatewood and was inspired to write the book by the bedtime stories that his mom used to tell him about Gatewood's adventures on the Appalachian Trail. Some of our listeners may know that I completed a thru-hike of the Appalachian Trail in 2022 and am currently working on a documentary podcast series about my hike and the history of the trail. I'm super excited to share this Appalachian Trail-related interview with our Earth to Humans audience and look forward to sharing more stories related to the Appalachian Trail in the coming months. I'm Matt Podolsky, and this is Earth to Humans. My name is Ben Montgomery, uh, and um, I wanted to be a farmer when I was uh, when I was a kid, but somehow wound up um, uh, becoming a writer, uh, sort of accidentally. And I was a newspaper writer for uh, for at, at first for well for most of my career. I've been doing this almost twenty five years now, but um, maybe ten years ago, uh, an agent. I wrote a big story for the newspaper for the St. Pete Times. And it got a lot of attention and somehow it wound up uh, in front of an agent in New York. And she wrote and she said, um, hey, uh, uh, I, you know, I like what you've written, but I, I wonder if you have any ideas for books. And this is like every young writer's dream to have a literary agent come to you and say, I'd like to represent you. And uh, the problem was I didn't really have any ideas. Um, and so I went scrounging around. Here's like this golden chance for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm mid thirties. Um, uh, and here's a, a chance to do a nonfiction book with, by the way, an agent who represented Barack Obama. Like this is a, a big literary agent. So, um, anyhow, I scrounged around and I started talking to my people and, um, uh, and I remembered, uh, this story that my mother used to tell me, and it was, you know, like a bedtime story. Uh, about this distant relative of ours named Emma Gatewood, uh, who everyone called Grandma Gatewood. And the stories that I remember my mother telling were uh, generally that she was an eccentric, um, interesting, independent woman who just started walking in her golden years and somehow amassed thousands and thousands of miles on foot I had had hiked the uh, Appalachian Trail at least a couple of times. I don't think my mother knew the details, but she'd hiked at least a couple of times. She was the first woman to hike, to through hike uh, the Appalachian Trail by herself. Uh, and so this is kind of the vague. And then she had some great anecdotal stories like uh, um, uh, Emma Gatewood scared off a black bear once using her umbrella. She, you know, flapped her umbrella and, and scared off the black bear. And she got struck by a rattlesnake, but it just got the outside of her dungarees. So there was these sort of harrowing stories that, that mom would tell us. 
Um, and I thought of this and like, I wondered if there was something there, this is a, you know, sort of a simple story, but is there anything more there? And I went casting about, uh, trying to figure out the rest of the story. And I learned quickly that nobody had given her serious biographical treatment. She shows up in a few books, but it's always in passing. Uh, she was mentioned in Bill Bryson's very famous A Walk in the Woods, which got made into a Hollywood movie. But he was kind of dismissive of her. He said she was always getting lost and she was eccentric and things like that. So she shows up here and there, but nobody had really taken a deep look at her life. And um, uh, and and I thought I saw this as a chance. And I, I very e simply I sent my I sent this agent a couple of paragraphs kind of sketching out her life, what I knew about her life. And I sent it back and she said, I love this. Let's, let's do the book about uh, the hiking granny, as she said. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I, at this point, I had no idea if any of Grandma Gatewood's children were still alive. I didn't know anything at all about, um, you know, the details of her trail. I knew it must have been hard for a 67-year-old woman, her being the first woman in the year is 1955. But I didn't know, I didn't have a sense of what the trail was or what it meant to people or even how old it was in 55 when I made that first pitch. All of that I would learn later. But, um, but I pitched this very straightforward story about a woman, the first woman to solo through Hike the Appalachian Trail. And she did so at the age of 67 in 1955. And, uh, and, uh, you know, with, with that very simple sketch, uh, we started to try to sell a book. And, um, uh, again, I didn't, uh, uh, all of the details about her life, the, the dark history about being married to, you know, for 30 years to an abusive, oppressive, hard-fisted man, all that I would learn later after finding and talking to her children. But, um, but just on that nugget, that very simple uh, very simple arc woman with a dream to hike the trail goes out and does it. Uh, we, you know, we sold a book and got a deal with, um, Chicago review press, which is this kind of boutique, uh, publisher in Chicago that has a keen interest in promoting the stories of women who have been forgotten to history. And so this was like a book that was right up their alley. You were hearing stories about grandma Gatewood growing up and, you're a distant relative. Like, do you know what the family connection is? Did you know that as a kid or did you like figure that out once you dove into the research? I just knew she was distant and I didn't know exactly what that meant. Uh, my mother called her her great aunt, um, but that uh, I'm not sure made any sense at all to me. So uh, my uh, grandmother, my mother's mother was Emma Gatewood's cousin. Um so, uh, wait, is that right? Uh, my mother's mother, no, I'm sorry. My mother's mother was cousins with Emma Gatewood's children. So my great grandmother was Emma Gatewood's sister. Um, this Emma preceded me. Uh, she died in 73. I was born in 78. So we missed each other by five years. My mother never met her, doesn't have a memory, uh, meeting, uh, Emma, but, but it's sort of these stories that, that families tend to pass down, Especially when you, have, when you have someone who's made a mark, you know, who's like achieved a level of celebrity, as minor as that might have been in 1955. Uh, families have a tendency to kind of keep and, and pass down those stories. And that's how I came by it. Um, but yeah, just uh, just a general sense that she was this uh, distant relative somehow. How did you where did you like how did you start? Well, uh, this was my first book, uh, and so I, I didn't really know. I was feeling my way through this. Like, what what do you do? What's out there? What exists to this person? Um, and so, first things first, I probably read the Wikipedia entry if one existed. Uh, you know, whatever the like number one hit for Grandma Gatewood was on Google, and you start from there. You really start like peeling the onion, um, and and this for me meant uh, ultimately. Um, uh, tracking down her family. And that wasn't an easy thing. I had some names, uh, talking to my own aunts and uncles. I was able to put together some, some names of people who might've been Emma Gatewood's children, um, through family connections. I figured out where they might be living now. They're all in their, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, uh, but where they might be living. And I reached out and it turns out, um, as I was starting work on this book, uh, 
uh, a filmmaker in Ohio was starting work on a documentary project about Grandma Gatewood, and she had made connection with some of the family members. And so um, I touched base with her uh, early on. Uh, she gave me some telephone numbers. Uh, I reached out. My very first phone call was to Lucy Seeds, who um, unfortunately just passed away last week, uh, well into her 90s. She was Grandma Gatewood's youngest uh, child, and she is um, she was the next to last to go out of 11 children. Uh, she was uh, she she has one sibling who's still living, Rowena Gatewood, who's in well into her hundreds, living in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, but I reached out to Lucy. This would have been about 2011 or 2012. She lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, was living independently at the time, had all of her, her, her wherewithal and so forth. And I said, I introduced myself. I said, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm a distant relative of yours. I know who you are. You're Grandma Gatewood's daughter. Um, uh, I said, I would like to come visit you. I, I have um, you know, a deep interest in, in trying to put together a book about your mother. Um, and, and I'd like to pitch that to you and see what you think of it. And so she invited me to Jacksonville, and I think I drove drove up that weekend. Um, I brought with me long newspaper stories that I had written uh, to give her some sense that I knew what I was doing. At least I knew how to string a sentence or two together. At that time, I had like I had done some good newspaper work that had gotten some recognition. The Dozier School for Boys, which has recently been. Uh, uh, received some notoriety because of Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Nickel Boys, which is based on a true story. Uh, that was my work. Uh, that that um, we, we were, uh, my work and some colleagues at the Tampa Bay Times, we were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. So I had some of this, I had some, I built up some cachet, if you will. And I took it to Lucy and I said, here's me, here's who I, here's who I am. I've not yet done, done a book, but um, I want to do this and I want to do it right. And uh, it took a little while to earn Lucy's trust, to be honest. She, um, she had uh, some, she felt proprietary. She'd been keeping her mother's story uh, alive for quite a while. She did uh, talks at, uh, for the uh, gatherings of the Long Distance Hikers Association and the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and so forth. Um, and um, so she wanted to protect her mother's story. She wanted it to be true. She wanted it to be told, uh, you know, you know, uh, um, uh, in a truthful way. Um, and I had to win her trust. And this, this meant, uh, coming back a few times, you know, she didn't, she didn't just let it all out. Uh, during that first meeting, I came back and we had long conversations that I would listen to her tell her life story. Um, and she, at one point made me a scrapbook with some stuff, uh, some of her mother's stuff in it, uh, copies of her mother's stuff. Um, after about the third or fourth visit, and and actually we also went together to uh, uh, to the induction of her mother into the Appalachian Trail Hall of Fame. Uh, this would have been 2012, I think. Um, after and we met a lot of hikers. By the way, we were coming through Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania on on that little stretch. Um, anyways, it was this wonderful moment, and it, it allowed me to meet some of the rest of the family. Uh, Lucy's kids, Lucy's sister, Louise, uh, they all gathered there. Um, and, and this went a long way toward, um, just sort of establishing trust and letting them know who I was and that I was serious about doing right by their mother and her legacy. And, um, and after, after that experience, Lucy, uh, you know, the next time I came to her house, she took me into a back bedroom and she opened up a closet and inside there were, uh, several bankers boxes that contained what was left of her mother's stuff, uh, her trail journals, her correspondence with people uh, that she'd kept through the years, um, photographs, uh, uh, diaries, uh, little clippings that that you know newspaper uh, uh, stories galore were written about Emma Gatewood over three hikes, and so a lot of them. Uh, would a lot of the reporters would mail back home to Emma her clippings and she would get them when she returned from her hikes and she kept them all bound in a scrapbook. And beautifully for my uh, benefit, uh, biographers love this, uh, she made corrections in the margin. So if a newspaper reporter made an error, well, she would uh, 
you know, underline it or cross it out and write in her correction in the margin. And, and, and this is super useful. So, uh, yeah. And so then, you know, I wanted to see the trail, um, and, um, and, and I started, uh, but also I had to be efficient with my time. I had a, a promised this book in about a year from when I signed the contract, when I came time to deliver. And so, um, uh, i I realized early on, I started talking to the folks, at the ATC, uh, very good people, by the way, including Lori Pottinger, who, um, was a big help in, in me putting together this book. Uh, many of them were Brian King, the historian there, um, Anyways, I started talking to them and I realized pretty quickly, somebody told me that um, about 95% of the trail was actually different today than it was in 1955, because it's always changing. Uh, you know, they, they move it to protect ecologically sensitive areas or to prevent erosion or sometimes to give the hiker a better experience. Uh, the trail is kind of constantly being rerouted. And, um, and sometimes there are big hurricanes that pass through and create blowdowns. And so they'll reroute the trail around that and things like this. So anyways, when I came to <laughs> experience a trail in like 2012, it was a lot different than it was when, when grandma Gatewood hiked it in 1955. And so it wouldn't have done me much good to like see spots that she would have never walked through. Um, but there were parts that were exactly the same as she would have seen in 1955 to include, uh, as you know, stretch through Harper's Ferry down the brick streets and kind of the, it's marked, uh, the trails marked right through Harper's Ferry. Um, uh, and then it crosses the same bridge. You know, many of the bridge crossings are exactly the same because there's no way around getting, getting over a bridge, right? Fontana Dam, exactly like it was in 1955. Um, Hunt Spur up uh, Mount Katahdin at the end of the trail, exactly like it was in 1955. Um, so after I figured out these parts, I wanted to see them. So I went to Harper's Ferry. I went to Katahdin. Um, I went to uh, the origin, which uh, now, as you know, Springer Mountain. Back then it was um, Mount Oglethorpe. Uh, it was rerouted in the 1960s or 70s. To the, the base was changed. The southern terminus was changed. Um, so I climbed, you know, through private property onto uh, Mount Oglethorpe to see what, what it would have looked like for her, you know, in 1955. Um, and then, you know, local librarians, uh, uh, every library, uh, within 50 miles or so of the Appalachian trail, I called and I would just say, Hey, I'm Ben Montgomery. Can you, would you mind? Like if anybody has any extra time, I'm working on this project about a woman who hiked through there in 1955. I'm pretty sure she would have created news for your newspaper, could you check from this day to this day in 1955 to see if there are any stories about Grandma Gatewood? And nobody said no. Every librarian I talked to was more than happy to like help me out with that. And 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 lots of them came through, uh, delivered uh, clips, um, clips about her hike. And this is when I, you know, her family didn't know that the hurricane, uh, two hurricanes, made back-to-back -back landfall. And, and sort of chased each other up the Appalachian chain in, in that summer while she would have been on the trail. Her family knew none of that. Somehow, I'm not sure that Emma herself was aware that she was hiking through these hurricanes. But if you look at the news clippings, you see like there's a story about old grandma hikes the Appalachian Trail right next to devastating hurricane kills 211 people in you know New England and New York. It was that kind of uh, those kinds of stories. So a lot of learning like that, you know, and then, and then that wasn't, that's not the end of her life. The trail is like part of it, but who she was, you know, uh, growing up, all of those things are building blocks for, for what she did in 1955. And, um, and that took a lot of work. Like how do you get divorce records, uh, to verify that things were, as she wrote them down. Um, uh, you know, it means visiting county courthouses and little towns in West Virginia and um, and going back through court documents and also finding as many family members, uh, people who might have remembered her, uh, you know, as possible. I tracked down. She was great about note keeping and she kept a list of the people that she met along the trail, including their hometown. And this was back in the day when you could send uh, a postcard or correspondence just to a a post office 
and say like, you know, put someone's name on it. It's general delivery for Michael Smith or whatever. So she would do that a lot. She would get their hometown and then mail them correspondence. And I tracked down a few people that way. Uh, a couple of guys who helped her out of a jam once. I helped her across uh, Clarendon Gorge at flood stage who were, uh, they were in their late teens at the time on leave from the Navy. And um, they had this harrowing experience together. And she wrote, she wrote about it in her journal. I tracked them both down. They're both in their eighties now, uh, but they remembered that experience like it was yesterday and were able to recount it for me. So, you know, just a lot of that kind of reporting, like seeing who's alive and finding phone numbers and figuring stuff out. And then pretty soon you start to, you start to get a full picture of who somebody was. And, um, and, and then, and then it means reporting on that era, you know, and on the trail, uh, how the trail came to be in the biography of it. And that's not a, it's not an easy thing to do. So all of this kind of was amounted to about eight, you know, eight months to a year of like serious reporting, uh, you know, a collection of material uh, before I even started to sit down and write. Grandma Gatewood was was known, well known within the the long distance hiking community and the Appalachian Trail community, but her background wasn't known. The motivation for why she hiked and her difficult past, her abusive past was not known. And that like when your book came out, that was kind of like a revelation for a lot of people. It answered a lot of questions, I think, that folks had. But as, like, I wonder, like that seem feels like the trickiest part to report, right? And the, maybe the, and the trickiest part to like talk to her daughters about. How did you approach that? Yeah, it was. Uh, so it helped that I had um, I had a lot of training and a lot of experience in my newspaper job. Uh, in terms of talking to people about trauma and especially about experiencing child childhood trauma. Um, I, you know, my work on the Dozier School for Boys meant interviewing somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 men who'd been abused as little boys uh, uh, in state custody. And so, um, you know, I have found that uh, as a journalist, uh, if I can just shut up and ask a question and then sit back and let people talk, I'm doing my job. And that's how it was, honestly, with um, with uh, uh, Emma Gatewood's children, with Lucy, Louise, Rowena, and Nelson, all of whom I interviewed before. Well, three of them are now dead. Um, but uh, you know, I said. So how I found out about it was Lucy told me, and she had no. Th this is the the beauty of her. Um, she had no. Uh, she had no defense of her father. She uh, could contextualize him as an abusive, op oppressive man who was a terrible husband who beat his wife, uh, you know, within a, uh, you know, an inch of her life a handful of times, witnessed by the children. She'd see him in that light and also know that he was able to maintain a job as a teacher and a school bus driver and a home builder for some time, and that he would uh, present in the community as a leader, sometimes speak in the church, um, that he was, uh, by, uh, by everyone's, uh, everyone's uh, memory that I've talked to, a doting grandfather, took all of his grandkids fishing, loved on them, nurtured them, treated them right. That, that was, for her, it was the same person. And she didn't have a problem talking about that. She didn't feel like it, it was her secret to keep or that it should be kept. And so um, while she didn't put that out sort of when she made these talks in front of the Appalachian Trail uh, uh, Conservancy and, 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 the, and the gatherings of hikers and so forth, um, she didn't have any problem revealing to me for uh, what would be a deep serious biographical look at her mother. She didn't have any problem talking about that. And so often it was like, for me, like, what do you remember specifically? Because I want to try to sort out um, what I can of the truth and uh, what the witnessed truth, <laughs> truth, right? So I had, 
uh, Grandma Gatewood's words. She wrote about this in 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 a biography, a little sketch that was she maybe left a five page biographical sketch for her grandchildren. About one whole page was about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her husband. So she felt like it was a significant part of her life. Twenty percent of her biography that she wrote was dedicated to this terrible experience of being married to this man. Um. So, uh, so I had those words and what I, what I needed was real witnessed memory from these children. What was their father like? And all of them were forthcoming. Um, I think Louise, uh, who was the second youngest was the only one to say, you know, I'm not sure we should be talking about this. Um, she said, it feels a little wrong to me to be airing this kind of thing in public, but it happened. And if we're interested in telling the truth about my mama, then I need people to know the truth. And so, you know, she wanted she wanted me to know that she didn't have an easy time talking about it, but she didn't mind sharing it if I would treat it in a sensitive way. And so um, this was something that just, you know, that once you ask the question, then it, it just became this rush of thoughts and emotion. And it was not something that they had an easy time revisiting. Um, these memories were harsh and they were difficult uh, to, to dredge up again. Uh, but but they um, all four of the children remembered very specific details and instances in which they witnessed their father, uh, you know, abusing abusing their mother. So so I felt like that was um, you know if they were if they felt at liberty to talk about it, th- this was if if one of them would have said I don't feel like this <laughs> belongs in the book, we might have had a deeper conversation. But because they were forthcoming, because they all felt like this was a big part of who, who their mother was and why she did what she did. Uh, you know, it felt totally on limits to me. And um, the reward has been seeing how this book has positively affected people in similar situations. There's a an outfit in Virginia called Primetime for Women that is structured around helping women who've been abused. And I've heard from many of them, um, many of them who are now experiencing the outdoors, some for the first time, who've said like Grandma Gatewood serves as a motivator for them, that they came out of abusive relationships and because of her strength have found strength inside of themselves uh, to, you know, to go and experience the outdoors and like hike alone, which is a big deal, you know, something a lot of men don't think about, but like hiking alone for a woman is a, uh, can, can be a, a, cher- a scary and challenging thing. And I think she opened the doors for a lot of people to like, you know, take those sorts of risks, if you will. I mean, you mentioned that her trauma and her this long term abusive relationship, like, obviously is a part of the reason why she did what she did. Right. But like, I, I guess I wonder if like that, if if you found direct reference to that, like in this mini biography that she wrote, did she make that connection or did any of her. Uh, children make that connection of like she did this for this reason or at least in part and I you know and I'm curious if she talked about that because I mean it isn't like if I'm remembering correctly I mean she just left to start that she didn't tell any any of her family members what she was doing is that correct yeah that's right um, she was afraid that they would try to stop her so uh, she actually did it twice she had a false start in 1954 uh, she was going to try a uh, southbound and she went to Mount Katahdin uh, and at the risk of giving away some of the book, uh, she started a hike in 1954 that no one knew about. She never told a soul about um, and she failed. She made it within, you know, a couple of days of Mount Katahdin. Uh, she passed Rainbow Lake campground and then lost the trail and got lost uh, in the main woods and uh, came to a spot where she thought she was going to die. And she wrote later that she laid down on a rock and uh, said, if well, if I'm going to die, this is as good a place as any. And um, got up one more time to find the trail, found it and made her way back to the campground, was very embarrassed by that experience. The rangers who had been looking for her because she was missing for a couple of days, the rangers who had, who had been looking for her said, this is no place for a woman like you. Uh, they told her to go home, grandma. And, um, and she kind of did, she was bruised and, 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 uh, she had been bitten in the eye by a black fly and she all, you know, lost broker glasses and all sorts of issues. And this was an eye opener for her. This is not, um, a walk in the park. 
that she had been led to believe by the 1949 National Geographic story, which was the first major press for the Appalachian Trail. It was the first major magazine story anywhere, or newspaper story that I could find uh, that really painted this roseate picture of what it took to through hike the trail. Anybody in moderate physical condition could hayfoot, strawfoot from Georgia to Maine, it said. And um, anyways, after this terrible experience in 1954, uh, she, you know, could have folded, but she decided she was going to try it again. This time, go from the start from the south. And uh, she didn't want anybody to know. I never came across any reference that she knew or would have known that she was the first woman to through hike or that anybody even at that time was really keeping track of like through hikers. Um, you, you know, the, we, we think it's a long known thing, like through hiking is a thing, but this was not through hiking was not anywhere on the radar of the dreamers of the Appalachian trail. The men and women who built the thing never thought somebody would try to walk the whole thing. That was not the intention. It was to provide a footpath, easy access of 60% of the U.S. community. 60% of us lived along the eastern seaboard. So this would give more than half the American population really a great chance to take a long walk, but not a, a walk of 2,000 miles or more. They were thinking like a couple of days out, a week out, maybe, whatever. Um, so when Earl Schaefer did it in, in, in the late 40s, 48, the ATC didn't believe him. They were like, prove it. And uh, I think he had to send uh, send in some diary entries and uh, some photographs to sort of prove that he had done the whole thing in one in one go. And that was really the first that like a through hike. They didn't call it a through hike, but the first that walking the whole thing uh, was on anybody's real real radar. Um, so when Emma did it in 1955, it wasn't like they were keeping a log like every year, oh, you send in your information or there's a class or, you know, now they have a yearbook, which I love looking at the yearbook of the through hikers. Uh, this did not exist in that day. And so um, so I don't find any reference that she would have known that she was the first woman or among the first women. I found no mention that she had that ambition. She never wrote anywhere. I set out to be the first woman to through hike the Appalachian trail. She just wanted to hike the Appalachian trail. Um, so, um, so when she did it, uh, when, uh, you know, certainly when she got to the end, when reporters were writing, she's the first woman that we've ever heard of coming along here. She would have come into knowledge of that, but, uh, but I don't sense that that was her ambition that she thought like, I'm going to get myself into, this very niche record book <laughs> of, of weirdos who every summer, you know, every spring set out to hike 2,500 miles. Um, but, uh, but she did enjoy the celebrity for the most part. Uh, she, you know, she got a kick out of the attention. Um, I try to put myself in her shoes a lot to like get inside of her head a lot. I think, you know, I've ran this by her kids. I, they all have different feelings about it, but I think she probably liked that her ex-husband was like a dude who read the local paper and would have seen these great stories about how Emma Gatewood from Gallia County, Ohio, had become the first woman to solo through hike the Appalachian Trail. Hell, they had a parade for her in Galpolis when she finished. It was a big deal. Uh, so I'm thinking like she probably was celebrating the fact that she was getting you know, some attention back home and that, uh, that guy who laid hands on her all those years, uh, you know, <laughs> saw what she could do. Um, that's a cool thing. I do know that at the end, he, one of the things that like I celebrate about the whole thing at, at the end of his life, uh, Nelson told me that he had a dying request. Uh, PC Gatewood had a dying request and that was, uh, he wanted Emma to come. He said, I don't even need to talk to her. Just I want to see her one last time. Tell her to come grace my 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 doorway. And uh, and Nelson, who was an adult, carried that message to his mother. And he said, you know, dad wants to see you one last time. And she, this woman who had hiked by my calculation, no, no less than 14000 miles starting at the age of 67 uh, she said, I will not do that. I will not take those steps. And she refused to do that. 
maybe you can talk a little bit about like how she became a celebrity, right? Because like, it's not, as you said, through hiking, the AT wasn't a, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't on anybody's radar. It wasn't even on the radar of the people who established the, the, the trail itself. And I like, I can't imagine that she expected to become famous doing this thing. Like, how did it happen? Yeah, no, on the contrary, she, uh, she wanted to keep it secret. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, she didn't tell her kids uh, because she thought somebody might try to stop her. Uh, And then beyond that, she thought, you know, somebody might try to come hurt me or get me or or something if if they read about it in the newspaper that I'm out hiking alone. Um, So she didn't. She kept to herself. And really, from from Georgia to Virginia, she kept this uh, pretty close to the vest. Um, she would let on once in a while here and there that, that what she was trying to do, but didn't tell very many people word got out, uh, as it does on the AT, it went straight up the trail and beat her to Roanoke. Uh, and there were two, there was a a reporter and a photographer who worked for the local paper in Roanoke, Virginia, and they were also members of the local trail club. And so they had heard that this little old lady had started at Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia and was coming along the AT and they were on the lookout for her. And essentially what they did was uh, they intercepted her. Uh, At first she refused. She told them she didn't want to share her story um, and she kind of kept, kept going, but they hiked with her for a while and they offered to carry her pack ahead to the next shelter, which was managed by the local trail club. So they knew where it was. So they said, we'll run ahead. We'll keep your pack there. And you can stay, uh, courtesy of us, uh, stay here in the shelter this night. And so she was uh, all about that. Oh, I think they offered her some food and stuff. They, she, she needed that very much. They took her pack. She walked the rest of the way. And then uh, when she arrived, they kept prying her for the story. They, she knew who they were. They told her. They kept prying her for the story. And eventually, maybe because of fatigue or because they had been so kind to her with the shelter and the food, she relented and she told them for the first time who she was, where she was from and what she was going to do. And this is when she realized she better let her family know (laughs) what she's up to because it had been uh, more more than a month that she was on the trail, uh, somewhere more than nine weeks, um, two months. uh, And she thought, I'll drop a postcard in the mail. I couldn't put my hands on this postcard. I don't know that it still exists, but everybody remembered it saying the same thing. Uh, She said, by walk, I mean, I'm." she had told them she was going on a walk, by the way, before she disappeared. She said, by walk, I mean, I'm I'm trying to through-hike the Appalachian Trail, uh, which is 2,150 miles. And so um, this was the first her family heard about it, and she wanted them to know before news broke in the newspaper. The Roanoke Times, uh, the Roanoke Times, I think, was an afternoon paper, so it would have come out the following day. Uh, right after that, the 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 story spread. Um, it uh, sh- she starts running into reporters routinely on the trail. People who've come out from small newspapers read that story. They know to expect her. Um, Sports Illustrated which was brand new at that time. Uh, 1954 is when it it first launched sports illustrated found out a young female reporter named Mary snow was like, ah, here's a, (laughs) a woman hiking the Appalachian trail. This is awesome. So she went out and, uh, a bear mountain, uh, uh, intercepted, uh, grandma Gatewood and convinced her to share her story in kind of a national publication. So from Rowan, from the news breaking in Roanoke, it took off. It was on, the radio, television, newspapers from then on. Um, and then each subsequent hike, when people found out it was, you know, it was the same kind of deal. Will grandma make it? Uh, and then the hike on the Oregon Trail, it was like opening her to a whole new uh, group of media, uh, the Western media. So they were waiting for her in Colorado and Nevada and so forth. At Portland, Oregon, when she arrived, um, she became a cause celeb and she made it onto some very important programs, uh, television programs. The Today Show with Dave Garraway uh, hosted Emma Gatewood and did a small feature on her. Um, after that, in, uh, in um, 1959, when she did the Oregon Trail, she went south and, and appeared on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx 
which was a, a major television program at the time. And she got a ton of national celebrity that way. And as I write in the book, she also, uh, you know, Earl Schaefer had, had through hiked the Appalachian Trail. There had been a story in National Geographic, but there was never any big, uh, never any big news about the, about the AT. The fact that it existed was not, it didn't make big news. It was a, a path or a trail um, until she starts this hike. Uh, until she gets discovered on this hike. And then at the at the end, the Associated Press and UPI, United Press International, were doing almost daily dispatches with her progress as she approached Mount Katahdin in Maine. Uh, you know, so it was national news. It was like every newspaper in the country was running dispatches daily at the end. And this pointed a just the most major spotlight to that date, to 1955, of, of any uh, of anything on the on the AT on the fact that it existed um, since the book has come out people have written me to say this is the first I ever heard about the AT I remember being a kid in 1955 and reading about this grandma walking the trail and uh, you know and now I've t- 10 years later I got to go out and do it and um, and now I love the trail I've been back every year since or whatever so it it stoked for a lot of people in America it introduced them to the trail but then stoked for them. Uh, this um, desire to do it and brought lots of people who would, there's no way to count the number of people that grandma gave was influenced in that way. But um, I, I, I bet just based anecdotally on the number of people I've heard from, there's a great number of people read about the trail for the very first time in 1955 because of what she was doing. And I mean, she wasn't the spokesperson that anybody associated with the Appalachian trail up until that point expected like, how did, you know, and, and I'm curious about, like, the reactions from folks who were, you know, working for the ATC or, you know, affiliated with some of these trail organizations. Like, how did, I'm sure that some folks were really excited to see the, the trail get recognition, but I'm sure a lot of folks were not that happy because of who the spokesperson was. <laughs> Yeah, and she was uh, she was incredibly critical of the trail, uh, just at every opportunity. Not because it was uh, because she was having a bad experience, because she thought it could be better. Um, there were times when she'd get lost because it wasn't blazed through certain stretches, um, parts where um, you know the trail would just end. And she'd have no way, no, no idea which way to go to come to a road. And she couldn't see how it picked up on the other side of the road. And she'd have no idea how to deal with that. Um, beyond that, you know, as, as, as a, as a guy who's through hiked, you know, that that trail doesn't always follow the easiest, <laughs> easiest course. Like there's a whole stretch. I think they call it the roller coaster. Uh, it feels like it shouldn't be much like the lowlands through, West Virginia or something at you come out of the Shenandoah and then you just go, go up and over like a hundred little Hills all the way down, all the way, all the way down. It's, it's the worst. And as you're hiking that, you think, why would this trail do this? Why not like follow this Creek or, you know, the path of least resistance not up and over the mountains down every Valley up every Hill. That makes no sense. So she was saying the same things uh, in 55. She said an Indian would laugh at this trail, by which she meant, you know, a Native American would laugh at this trail because it's not, this is not the path that a normal person would take. We would follow the ridgeline. And as you know, the AT does not necessarily follow the ridgeline. It does in some stretches. Some stretches, you're like, why the hell am I going down here when I know I'm just going to have to climb back up? I could have walked right across there. Um, so anyway, she was critical in that way. She said there, you know, there's lousy spots where the big trees blown down you can't find your path. And then beyond that, um, it makes, there's stretches of this trail that just make no sense. Uh, it's laughable how it runs. And so the, the reaction, uh, which is hard to suss out as a reporter, like, how do you find this? Um, and it's generally talking to people. Uh, who remember that uh, people associated with the ATC, the Brian Kings of the world, who remember that afterwards uh, there was a couple of things happened. One, the number of people 
tempting through hikes started to move up. It was gradual at first, but the number of people attempting through hikes were like right after that start to really increase, especially after her, her third complete hike, which also brought a lot of attention to the trail in, the, in this uh, early 60s. It started to shoot up after you see double and triple the number of attempt, attempted through hikes in years after. Um, so it brought people out to the trail. And then beyond that, it sparked this, um, yeah, you know, what, what better way to look at it? Like some of the, some of the stretches that she was critical of people just hadn't been, the, tr the clubs weren't organized or they hadn't been well-maintained or they needed other clubs to step in to help, help with the maintenance. Cause it's a volunteer effort, you know, and she wasn't being critical in, in the sense of like, I'm, this, you know, how dare these people try to do this? Like it, it wasn't that sort of criticism. Like let's make this trail better so that we don't get lost so much. And um, so the more people can have access to it. And, uh, and this, you know, everybody you talk to say it led to a bolstered maintenance at the end of the fifties, the trail, naturally the trail is just sort of coming into um, the public consciousness, but there was an increased interest and an increased interest coupled with that in maintaining the trail and in the upkeep. And so a lot of the clubs that exist today, their real organization efforts starts in the late fifties, early sixties, this focused maintenance, improved structure, uh, shelters, uh, you know, more attention to the trail, that sort of thing. And uh, look, I make the argument in the book because uh, it's a challenging um it's a challenging, uh, 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 what, what do you call it? A uh, subhead. Uh, and the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail, right? Like she, I can make that argument. She did a lot to save the Appalachian Trail. Would it not exist if she never came along? Of course it would. It would still be here for us, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but but uh, that criticism at that time has given us the trail that we have today, which is a great experience. Uh and, you know, you don't go, you don't go a day without a shelter, right? Like even the slowest walkers among us can get to the next shelter in a day's hike. Um, so, and that's, it's because of her, I would think. It's because of that sort of early attention and early criticism that we have the, that the trail is protected as, as, as it is now. And that it has the, um, that it has the uh, conveniences uh, that, you know, that we enjoy today. Like, obviously the trail was already built. It would have been built, but it's really easy for me to imagine like it just fizzling and nobody really being that interested, you know, but it's like the through hiking, the thing that the founders didn't even, couldn't even wrap their minds around or certainly like never foresaw is what created this, um, this aura around it. Right. And, and made it like, even though, the vast majority of people who recreate on the trail are not through hikers. It's like the idea of doing that, like mesmerizes so many people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, she created that, right? I mean, it, she wasn't the first one to do it, but like, that's where that comes from. And a lot of the things you're saying sound are like, you know, sound really like familiar ideas that you hear all the time uh, on the trail now. And they weren't then. They weren't. Yeah. Cause there's so few people coming along and also like some, you know, she'd, she'd walk through somebody's backyard and they'd be like, what are you doing here? And she'd say, I'm on the Appalachian trail. It runs right through your property. You know, you're like, did Washington send you like, who is this woman who just hiked up out of nowhere? It was a much different place in 1955. You have to imagine that the United States before the interstates were built, Right. So the first interstate came along in 1955, the Penn Turnpike. That was the first one. It didn't exist before that. So we're connected by two lane highways, four lane highways, of course, but by and large by two lane highways, not by this system of roads that we now have where you can get from state to state very easily without much issue at all. So um, anyways, imagining it back then, you could easily see a, a, see a trail um, uh you know, at that time, not having as robust protection and just getting sliced up by interstates. Um, and because of this protection, because the interstates really started coming along in the 60s and 70s, people protected the AT along the way. Uh, that's I, th I, th I think it's to, you know, to credit to the credit of people like Grandma Gatewood and those early pioneers who who decided 
this is something that we should all work toward protecting. We should, and and it's, it, it exists today. Um, that uh, that that sort of motivation, that legislative motivation to do what it takes to uh, preserve and protect this gift, you know, from us, from the people of America to the future. I mean, I read this, uh, maybe you've read this this recent Appalachian Trail book, this kind of like, um, I think it's just called The Appalachian Trail, like a biography. One of his chapters is about Grandma Gatewood and Earl Schaefer, and he sort of provides a very condensed like biography of the two of them and a biography of like the first uh, through hikes of the trail and, and the role that that, that that played. But he also talks about like, the toxicity in the relationship between the two of them and how Earl Schaefer really deeply resented Grandma Gatewood and thought, like, did actually, like, publicly discredited her hike, said that it, like, questioned whether she had even done, like, completed it. Yeah, she, I don't know that she ever felt anything at all about Earl Schaefer. So that that's sort of what's interesting to me that that Earl, I've heard this too, that Earl had some kind of hard feelings about her. Um, and that he, he doubted that she actually completed a through hike. That just sounds like sexism to me. That sounds like a bullish man saying no woman can do what I've done. Uh, it, it wasn't uncommon in 1955 for men to have that attitude. And, um, look, she <laughs> one upped him, uh, in my mind, uh, she, she was not carrying pots and pans on an external frame uh, backpack. Grandma Gatewood was the pioneer through a uh, ultralight through hiker. She had a shower curtain to keep the rain off. She had no tent, no sleeping bag. She was carrying a blanket and some bouillon cubes. And uh, Earl had, you know, all his World War II stuff and Boy Scout supplies and whatnot. I don't mean to discredit him. I'm just saying like uh, she kind of did it better and more efficiently than he did. Also, I heard that he came down on her for like relot for asking people for food and stuff, but she never, it was not an issue for her. Like she never like forced herself on anyone. She would say, Hey, you got any food to spare? And, and more often than not, these people loved meeting her and hearing her stories and they would reward her by sending her off with food. It wasn't like she was a beggar or something. Right. And that's another one of those things that's like, you know, that's now a part of what through hiking is all about, right? Is about like, you know, receiving that, that, that kindness from strangers and the trail magic and all that. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to me though, that, uh, you know, in the same way that Earl uh, d discredited Grandma Gatewood not long ago, um, you know, somebody really took Earl to task. A lawyer wrote like, a, you know, 30 page paper about trying to disprove that Earl's first hike was actually a through hike, showing that he, he would have skipped. And it was very thoughtfully done and like, you know, uh, evidence that Earl had skipped big chunks of the trail. I didn't really pay attention to any of that. I don't know if it's true. I know Grandma Gatewood skipped a big chunk of the trail. Uh, there was a two-mile stretch that she drove around. I thought the AT, the AT community, like whiteblazes.net, would make a bigger deal out of that when the book came out. Her first through hike, she drove around two miles because it was flooded, and the ranger wouldn't let her, uh, or the game warden or whatever, wouldn't let her go through that stretch because it was just a big wet bog. So she took a ride around it. That's not technically a through hike. <laughs> You're taking a ride, but look, uh, there there are devout people, and I appreciate that. I, I I like the notion of being like so serious about it that you run your hand under a log and then you know up the log on the other side to like prove you've hiked every single inch of it. But um, rules were different in 1955. I think there you know again there was no technical through hike there's nobody recording these things there's nobody saying what 
qualifies as a through hike and what doesn't. There are no uh, guidelines or guiding principles. Anyways, they were just people out walking. Um, I know the only beef that grandma that I came across that Grandma Gatewood ever seemed to have was with Dorothea Lang, who was the first, uh, the second woman to solo through hike. And she did her uh, through hike in 57 at the same time that Grandma Gatewood was doing her second through hike. And those two leapfrogged for several days. Grandma Gatewood did not like Dorothy Lang. Um, she was dismissive. She barely mentioned her in her journals, even though I know they were hopscotching. Uh, um, it was like, this person doesn't exist. And I heard from other people that, that Grandma Gatewood was like, uh, you know, while, while she was alive was like, yeah, I don't know who she is. I don't care anything for her. She was not a mean person, but she, I, there's some rub that those two developed. And again, we can be making more of this than, you know, than they would have made at the time. You and I now, all these years later could be misinterpreting because we've heard stories from people and they've been passed on or whatever. We don't know really if there was beef between Earl and, uh, and Emma Gatewood or even Emma and, and Dorothy Lang. Um, it's, I think sometimes appealing to like, think that and like, you know, uh, try to superimpose, you know, our modern sensibilities on, on, through hikers from the day but you know in terms of evidence i think it's all just hearsay i mean you're totally right it's like at at that time like this wasn't an established idea right and i think that's partly why it's interesting to me and to some other people is because you know you spend some time out as a part of the through hiking community now and those conversations are are daily right like each person has a different version of what a through hike is to them. And it's all deeply personal and that's all fine. It all makes sense, right? Um, but here you have like the two original through hikers who supposedly had this beef over where, you know, were they doing it for the right reasons? Did they skip sections? Does, you know, does Earl's hike not count? Does Grandma Gatewood's hike not count? You know, you talked about how Emma Gatewood, she wasn't doing it to become a celebrity, but she became a celebrity by accident. Schaefer wanted to become a celebrity. Like he had ambitions to write a book. He was thinking, like he was actually almost certainly thinking, like I'm gonna be the first one to do this thing and then I'm gonna write a book and I'm gonna become famous. Be because he spent decades trying to publish his book after he completed his through hike and he was he never was able to publish it and eventually i mean it, it was eventually self-published but he never got the recognition he thought he deserved and that's just out there and the, that's like public knowledge you know what i mean and so it's like you can just imagine what he's thinking as grandma gatewood becomes this enormous celebrity and becomes the person that like saves the appalachian trail and he's like but wait i did it first <laughs> you know so anyways, um, but you're right. A lot of that could just be, you know, in our heads. Who knows what, what they were really thinking? Yeah, I couldn't find, I tried, I tried, uh, you know, I tried to find some evidence that, uh, or anything that she had written about Earl and I, or said publicly about Earl, I couldn't find anything. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it might've been his sour grapes and she didn't really care. So Emma Gatewood, she does her first through hike. She emerges from that through like a like seemingly a, a different person right like she's a celebrity now i mean she's still the same person but like i just imagine that like she's in a totally different position in her life right like what happens next well immediately uh she was greeted by a gaggle of reporters uh, in Millinocket, Maine, who, you know, want to know everything about her. Why did she do this? And she gives them all kind of this hilarious uh, response. Some of them different responses, you know, well, I wanted to see what was over the hill. And I just kind of kept going what was over the next one and the next one. Um, and then she, um, she went to New York and kind of enjoyed her celebrity. She was on the Today Show with Dave Garraway and uh, Mary Snow, the reporter from Sports Illustrated, showed her around New York. They had a nice time together. Um, 
And then she returned uh, to Gallia County, where uh, the people of her hometown celebrated her. Uh, the marching band played. Um, uh, you know, they recognized her for what she had done. Uh, and um, and she kind of just goes back to normal life. I'm honestly like she enjoys this for a little while, but then like slips right back into normal life. And she was not a person of means. So this, she saved up money about 200 bucks from her meager social security check in order to fund this hike. When she got back home, she had to go back to work. Um, so essentially, um, she went back to work. She started managing, managing a small trailer park. She bought a little lot with, six or eight trailers in them. And, uh, she was like a property manager. Uh, she babysitted her kids, uh, her grand, sorry, her grandkids. Um, and she started planning a second through hike. Uh, she corresponded with the people that she had met on her first hike. Many of them said, Hey, holler at us when you come back. She told him she would. And, uh, she started stitching together. Yeah. What would amount to a second through hike? She, did it much the same way. She left in the spring of 1957, uh, headed north. But the second trip was far more pleasant than the first. Um, the folks that she had made that she had met on the first trip were, were waiting for her. And so she knew she had places to stay, uh, occasional warm beds to sleep in. Um, she had made some friends who sent her off with food. Um, generally, it was like a much more pleasant uh, trip. She she wrote that she once stopped to take a, a nap on a log and she laid down and the log was stretched over the trail. And, um, and she was very quiet and just listening to the wind through the leaves. And she saw a fox jogging down the trail with uh, a mouse in its mouth, some small prey. And the fox didn't notice this woman laying on this moss covered log. And I like to picture this in my mind's eye. She's been on the trail a long time. Smells like the trail, you know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Smells of the trail. Looks of the trail. You know what I'm talking about? Like you have a trail look. It takes a little while, but you get it. And then, uh, and I picture this little fox coming down. It doesn't notice her at all laying across this moss covered log. She said that when the fox got close to her, she said, you brought me my dinner. And the thing stopped in the trail. It was like five feet away from her. Stopped. Noticed that she's a human. Dropped the mouse and turned and just darted away. Uh, just little funny experiences like that. Um Second trip was was you know was much better. She didn't have the hurricane to contend with, uh, and so uh, you know, and that that killed 211 people in in New England. She was on the Appalachian Trail with her shower curtain to keep the rain off. Um, that wasn't a factor the next go around. So it was a much better hike, and um, and at the end she you know she climbed Mount Katahdin and and became the first woman to ever first person to ever complete. Uh, you know, without a doubt, undisputed, because there's some dispute, Boy Scout troop of 1937 or whatever that might have hiked the trail. Anyways, undisputed first person to ever hike the Appalachian Trail, through hike the Appalachian Trail twice. And then she did it a third time too, right? And she did it a third time. She, she did the Oregon Trail in 59 from Independence, Missouri to Portland, Oregon, just to see something different. And, uh, and then, uh, and then started when, when she was done with that, she started stitching together. She was going to do a third through hike of the AT, but she got to North Carolina and there had been a, a terrible hurricane the year before. And the trail was tons of trees blown down. She couldn't even find her way through it. And so she bailed and came, joined another side when it was clear and finished and then came back and, and completed a, what we call it a section hike, uh, the first person to ever complete the, the full trail three times. And people say they still see her out there, uh, see her ghost. You can, uh, I don't know if I believe it. I, 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 you know, I like to believe it, but, uh, people who say she comes to them when they're thinking about giving up, she says, I did it. You can too. You know, something like that just offers a, some words of encouragement. Her legacy has also grown. I, 
when I went up Katahdin in 2012, I finished in September the same. It was like September 25th. It's the same day she finished. I always forget if it's the 25th or 26th. Anyways, the same day a lot of through hikers are finishing their through hikes in 2012. If any of you are listening to this podcast who are on top of Mount Katahdin and met me that day, you know that what I'm saying is true. A couple of guys, I was like, hey, I'm writing a book about Grandma Gatewood. Tell me what, what you know about her. What? One guy said, oh, you got to respect a woman who can hike the whole trail barefoot. <laughs> I was like, okay. Her legacy has grown to include the fact that she was barefoot. She was never barefoot. She did wear out a lot of pairs of shoes, but yep. I think there were barefoot sisters who did a through hike. Yeah, somebody did a barefoot, I think, more recently, yeah. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Here's senior producer Serena Simons sharing a quick preview. Um, I'm actually interviewing some folks from the Ukrainian Nature Conservation Group, and I'm going to be interviewing a herpetologist out there. He's like one of their few English-speaking colleagues from the group, but the group is focused on sort of monitoring and managing especially now while the the war is happening in Ukraine, um, like the ecological toll that war has had on their land and on their environment. And, you know, Ukraine before the war started was this beautifully fertile land where a lot of the world's um, like staple crops would be grown and shipped out and exported. So there was a lot of uh, a long culture of farming and, you know, just having like a, a really... Um, a, a lot of respect for the the land and the ecosystem. It's I think it'll just be like a, a really kind of eye opening episode for us. This is just one of many wars that's ongoing right now. It's just really made me think about what the not only the toll of war on people, but the toll of war on the land and the ecosystems. That was our conversation with Ben Montgomery, the author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk. If you'd like to learn more about Ben and his work as an author and journalist, we'll have relevant links on our show notes page for this episode. Check out earthtohumanspod.com. We'll be back in two weeks with our episode about wildlife conservation in Ukraine with Earth to Humans producer Serena Simons. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Serena Simons, Hannah Mulvaney, and me, Matt Podolsky. Music from this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Check out our website for a full list of credits, earthtohumanspod.com.